you're standing. And um, we'll turn to uh, the Lord's Word. What I really want to um, <clears throat> talk to you about this morning is how the cross of Christ heals our sin and shows us of the love of God. But I'm going to, to get to that through the context of a very specific common sin, the sin of self-pity. Now, <clears throat> self-pity is a spiritual poison that eats people up. It wastes lives. It spoils relationships. It ruins our Christian walk and testimony. It's a serious problem. And we're all tempted to self-pity. Richard Smith, writing in the British Medical Journal, observes that, quote, we're bombarded with opportunities to feel sorry for ourselves. Every day we're misunderstood, overworked, overappreciated, underappreciated, even abused sometimes. Regularly, something unfair will happen. We become ill. We lose our wallet or our pocketbook or, or someone steals our identity. Uh, or or um, we get caught in, in a traffic jam sitting 95 degree weather on the expressway on our way to the shore. And, um, and we, we think to ourselves, someone's out to get me. The devil's persecuting me. But it's not the devil, it's, it's you. It's self-pity that can ruin your life and your attitude. <clears throat> well, I saw this article in the Journal of Biblical Counseling some years ago that got me thinking about this. Listen to some of these symptoms. They will sound very familiar to all of us. <clears throat> First of all, self-pity is very self-centered. It, it turns the focus of everything uh, upon ourselves and away from uh, others' people's needs. And it's, it's all about poor me. And when we're wallowing in the grip of self-pity, we're completely incapable of gratitude or or of thankfulness. Self-pity is the very antithesis, the very opposite of thankfulness. Self-pity is so idolatrous. When self-pity takes over our heart, God is not on the throne. When you're filled with self-pity, there's simply no room for God in your heart at all. Secondly, self-pity is often angry and resentful. We get angry at God and people when we perceive that they're getting in the way of our comforts and our convenience and our plans. Self-pity makes us annoyed, at, even at God. It, it's his fault. It, it's, it's, it, he's to blame that this happened. It's so childish. When our hearts are saturated with self-pity, don't be surprised to find a sour, complaining spirit filled with negativity, malicious gossip, and, and name-calling. Uh, for a third thing, self-pity easily falls into a victim mentality. We're the hapless victims of every sort of catastrophe and, and vindictive meanness. They're all out for us. And when, we, when we start feeling for ourselves like that, we, we easily revert into an entitlement mentality that has become so endemic, so common in our country. I deserve better. I have to be treated better than this. Why isn't the government taking care of me? I shouldn't have to go through this. Do I sound like I know what I'm talking about? Do I sound like maybe I have some personal experience? I'm sorry to say that I do. 
So let's look at the root of pride and envy. <clears throat> Roman 1b, the root of pride and envy. And I'll say something else um, in this regard. Self-pity uh, sisters together perfectly with pride and envy. And in fact, you might even say that self-pity is rooted in pride and envy and unbelief. <clears throat> Maybe you're envious of your brother or sister or some friend or some relative or neighbor for their money or their clothes or their vacations. And you put on this tape called self-pity. It's a loop. And it plays over and over and over again, wondering why you don't have the health or the possessions or the fortunes of some other person. When you detect that sort of envy or self-pity in your heart, it should throw up a huge red flag. It should trigger a flashing red light and it says, here is pride and envy. Pride displaces God. Pride is the great enemy of grace the great enemy of grace in the gospel because grace flows to the lowest place. But the proud person is never found in the lowest place because the lowest place is the hardest place. It's the place of humility and repentance and faith. And even though we may be perfectly miserable and disappointed with ourselves and filled with self-condemnation, self-hatred, which is also very destructive, even then, we are still proud in a perverse sort of way. Self-pity is the heart of proud self-sufficiency. Uh, even failed self-sufficiency is very proud. And it's very depressing, really. People struggling with self-pity are frequently depressed. If you're feeling yourself depressed, don't be surprised to find pride and envy and self-pity at the root of it. Well, we need to move on. Brothers and sisters, how can we challenge self-pity? Here's the good news. Self-pity is met and conquered at the cross and by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2a, self-pity meets Jesus at the cross. But let me take you to the cross via the psalm which we read together earlier uh, responsively, Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is about a man who is struggling with self-pity. He writes in the first three verses, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. For, because... I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then he goes on to describe these people, you remember this, who are, are making him envious and making him feel sorry for himself and for his situation. Why had he even bothered to try so hard to live a godly life? And what does he get for it? Well, this arrogant bozo living next door, living in the pink of health, in the lap of luxury, lacking nothing so far as he can tell, yeah, so the psalmist writes, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed wearisome to me until, important word, verse 7, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end, how they're destroyed in a moment, utterly swept away by terrors. Now, what do we see 
when we go into the sanctuary of God, when we go before God in prayer and in His Word. We see truth. We see reality. In the sanctuary of God, we go to the cross. And at the cross, we see Jesus. So, yes, I want to take you to the cross. What happened at the cross? Well, the cross is all about our utter wicked rejection of the loving rule of God over our lives, over all of creation. Um, uh, That was displayed at the cross in Jerusalem. The Jews, the Romans, who utterly rejected Jesus as the Son of God, the Christ. And so our Lord Jesus was tortured to death at the cross, a terrible slow death that was reserved by the Romans for the very worst of criminals. But we know. We know why God allowed, why God even purposed the monstrosity of the cross because Christ died there as a substitute in the place of his people. Jesus took my place at the cross. The cross says to me, this is what you deserve. It should be you crucified for your sin, which is a personal affront and offense to the holiness of God, your creator. When you're so wrapped up in self-pity, thinking, why is this happening to me? The cross says to you, why is this happening to you? <laughs> You've got it all wrong. You don't deserve all these good things and blessings that, 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 are, that, uh, that break before. You deserve crucifixion. You deserve that for your selfish idolatry. That would be the fair and righteous end for guilty sinners. You should be on that cross, not Jesus. Jesus was sinless. He, was, he never wallowed in self-pity. You see, the cross is the terrible place of your uh, self, sinful self-pity. But look. Look what God has done for you. He sent his son to die in your place, despite your attitude toward him. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To bring you peace and wholeness and deliver you from yourself. To reconcile yourself and bring you into his loving embrace and deliver you from from self-pity. What kind of undeserved love is that? And do you know what? I think we're finally ready for my text this morning. You were wondering when I would get to that. It's found in the first chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. Uh, Colossians uh, chapter 1, reading verses 19 through 23. Colossians 1 from verse 19. For in him all the fullness um, of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile unto himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So, did you hear that? Paul says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now, God has now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death, by his death. 
in order to present you as holy and blameless and above reproach, making peace by the blood of the cross. That's the good news. That's the good counsel. You and I don't deserve all those good things and those good breaks we pity ourselves for not having. In fact, we deserve a lot worse than we get. We deserve nothing more than judgment in our sniveling self-pity and carping and complaining and blaming God. But he took the hit for us and gives us his forgiveness and love and grace in its place. B2 in the outline, restored to joy. You see, the awakened psalmist in verses 25 and 26 of Psalm 33 says, Whom have I in heaven for you, but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, when we understand those verses in light of the great merciful work of Christ, we're reminded of how we ought to see our lives. In light of the cross, in light of God's love that he's settled upon us, calling us away from our sinful self-pity and self-destruction and self-deceit into a world of, of light and thankfulness and, and new life. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had made a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus restores us to joy. We can rejoice in what we have. We can revel and bask and warm ourselves in the love of God for us, proved and demonstrated at the cross. At the cross, we're given all of the righteousness of Christ. God covers us, covers our filthy rags with the robes of Christ's righteousness. Uh, we are, he adopts us as his beloved sons and daughters. At the cross, Jesus has given us eternity in heaven, regardless of what we have or don't have in this short life. An example. Here's the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16. He has been faithfully serving the Lord together with Silas, another on one of his missionary journeys, delivering a demon-possessed slave girl, planting a church in Philippi. And what does he get for it all? He gets savagely beaten with rods, thrown into prison, set in the stocks, where he sits sullenly all night, grumbling and stewing in self-pity. This is how God treats his servants. I wouldn't treat a dog like this. Is that what we read? No. Because that's not what happened at all. Rather, Paul was singing. He and the Apostle Paul were singing hymns all night. The entire prison population was treated to a concert of praise to God as these two servants of Christ openly rejoiced in the love and the grace of God and the gospel and the incredible privilege of sharing with them even these untouchable prisoners who would have never have heard these things if God had not brought them to that place. Five or six years later, Paul's in another prison, only this time. He knows very well he might not get out. And not only that, he gets word from the outside, that petty rebels, rebels are, are preaching the gospel simply to spite him. Is he filled with self-pity? Is he seething in doubt and resentment towards God over his treatment and condition? Not at all. Not at all. Philippians 1, 12 to 14. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. No self-pity there. 
so that it has become known throughout the entire imperial guard and the rest uh, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, uh, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Rejoice in the Lord always, he says. He counsels. And again I say, rejoice. Brothers and sisters, the cross shows us the true measure of sin, including the sin of self-pity, all deserving of death. But anyone, writes William Farley, anyone who sees self-pity through the lens of the cross will increasingly detest their sin and flee from it. The alternative of self-imposed, uh, the alternative really just self-imposed misery of self-pity uh, instead of joy and thankfulness. The cross shows, shows us the way out uh, to the one trapped in self-pity. The only man who had any ever had a right to pity himself was the Lord Jesus. But he did not indulge in that form of self-indulgent, but instead, from the cross, he worshipped God. He prayed for his persecutors, even right there at the crucifixion. What an amazing cross. What an amazing story. The gift of the cross is conviction and thankfulness and forgiveness and joy. It's the gift of God's love that opens heaven to us. The cross also proves the amazing, unquenchable, unending love of God for his people that never stops, never gives up on us. Well, outline three, self-pity. What can you do? So, we need to answer that question. This is what you should do when you find yourself in the grip of self-hatred or self-pity. Do this to help you think about the cross. Take some notes now if you need to. Pick up a pencil. These are mostly ideas taken from the article of the Journal of Biblical Counseling I mentioned at the beginning. First, number one, run to your Bible. Run to your Bible. Open Psalm 73, or you can read Psalm 37. They're very similar. Or read through the book of Job. Here's a man filled with self-pity and complaints against God who learned better, especially don't miss Job's conclusions after he was confronted by God. Job says, Oh, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know, therefore I despise myself and repent with dust and ashes. We're not destroyed by our repentance. Indeed, it brings us, uh, when we come to the cross, to a wonderful new way of understanding God's grace. For a second thing, read through the passion narratives of Christ, by which I mean those passages that speak about Christ's suffering at the cross, and indeed suffering even before the cross, suffering for our sins. Meditate for a third thing, upon the propitiation of Christ. That is, how he bore the wrath of God in our place. Think about the terrible price of our forgiveness and how complete and perfect and gracious and everlasting it is. Ponder the perfections of, of what Christ has freely given us. If you've confessed Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are no subject of or object of self-pity. You are completely forgiven and completely righteous and filled with God the Holy Spirit. Remember it is, remember who you really are, not who, who you may think you are or not how, what other people may think of you, 
Um, but what God thinks of you. Remember who you really are, how God regards you. You are his beloved son and daughter or young person. You are not powerless. You are not nameless. You are not an orphan, a forgotten orphan. You are a son. Fourthly, meditate. Chew like a cow. How many stomachs does a cow have? Some of you know the answer to that. There's only one, but it has four chambers. And the cow keeps bringing up all the, the grass that he that he chews, and he chews it over, and he, he, as it were, we, we meditate, we chew on the love of God. We need to meditate or chew on the love of God. Pick up a pencil or a pen and make a list of all the places. Start flipping through the Bible and make a list of all the places that speak of the love of God and the love of Christ. You will be astounded how many there are. They simply pour out of the pages of the Bible. Start with this one. Write this down. Ephesians 3, 16 to 19. Ephesians 3, 16 to 19. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray, listen, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. That you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. That's amazing, isn't it? Let that verse roll around in your head and see what the Holy Spirit does to your self-pity. Fifthly, make a list of all the people you could write to or speak with or thank or encourage in, in their circumstances worse than your own. And finally, focus on eternity. If you're a converted person, you have a stunning future ahead of you. Uh, read Colossians 3, read Psalm 90, read, uh, read Revelation 21, read the concluding section of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is received into heaven. It's a beautiful picture. Don't let the poison of self-pity degrade your life and eat away your relationship with Christ and ruin your relationship with other people. Look at the cross. Your self-pity was nailed to the cross. Be filled with gratitude and praise to God for his mercy and love and his eternal commitment to you. Remember the words of Colossians 1.21. How? You, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from hope of the gospel that you heard. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you that you are very powerful. And your cross is powerful. And Lord, you are able at your cross to dissolve the sin, remove the sin of our self-pity, our self-reproach. Lord, what we think of ourselves is immaterial. We want to know what you think of us and what you've done for us in Christ. We pray that you would do this marvelous work of grace in the life of everyone who hears your word 
Bless us and turn our eyes to you and your love and your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.